Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, folks. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal and I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my melting pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Hi listeners, welcome to another melting pot episode, which as you know is a weekly episode and I have conversations with guests from all over the world and also from different walks of life. And my guest today is very special. I don't think I have in all the episodes that I have actually published, I don't think I've ever talked to, I I mean, I've talked to people in performing arts, but I don't think I've ever talked to a professional dancer. So that should be a first for me. So Rukmini Vijay Kumar is my special guest today. Thank you so much, Rukmini, for being a part of Melting Pot and sharing your story and your journey with my listeners and with me. So welcome to Melting Pot. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to be here virtually today. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So Rukmini, where did it all begin for you? Dancing, I think, is, it's been a part of my life as far as I can remember. I used to, it's my, my formal education I started when I was seven or eight. But I actually started dancing earlier. Uh, in seven, when I was seven or eight, I restarted learning Bharatanatyam. So when I was very young, I would uh, watch my mom uh, because she used to go to Bharatanatyam class. And I wanted to go. And when we were, when I was very small, we moved to the U.S. So then I, I did ballet for a little while. When we came back to India, I continued with Bharatanatyam. So there was this initial, I mean, an initial exposure to Bharatanatyam. Then I did ballet for a few years and then I came back to Bharatanatyam. When did you come back to India from the U.S.? I think I must have been in the third or fourth. Okay, so you were still very young when you came back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. uh, so that that's why ballet was very small. I didn't really do much of it. Like maybe two years when I was very young. Uh, then obviously it was just Bharatanatyam because I was back in India. Yeah, that's how it all began. It began with watching my mom and wanting to dance like everyone in her class. Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> okay, that's interesting. So then you moved on. So did you not go back to the US? To I did because most of our family remained there. Okay. And family moved back. I continued with my Bharatanatyam training and I didn't do any ballet or modern for a long time until in my teens when I started again. So I would go in the summers and I would go to a dance studio which was near my uh, cousin's house and spend summers going there. And then I, obviously the rest of the year I would just live in my dance teacher's house, like my Bharatanatyam <laughs> teacher's house. Right. So I, it kind of restarted again and I also started learning with a ballet teacher who had moved to India at that time. Then I went back for college and college was in, it's a conservatory. So we just did, uh, it's a performing arts conservatory. Right. And so I did ballet and modern there and it kind of switched. So I would, I did ballet and modern and then I came back to India and continued to live in my teacher's house. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of how, how it was. Those are my training, you know, intensive training years. So they, they are completely different dance forms, right? Is there a commonality between the two dance forms? I think that as a performer, there is this performance quality that exists when you are on stage. It doesn't matter what kind of dance you practice or what kind of performance medium that you um, engage in. There is a performance quality in terms of presentation or owning space and stage. All of that is the same throughout all performing art forms. It, it doesn't even matter whether it's dance or music. And there is also, um, there are some similarities with respect to uh, how you use, um, you know, your center and your core and ballet is also very turned out, Bharatanatyam also we turn out. So there's some crossover in terms of muscle engagement, but the intentions of the art forms and where they came from are totally different. But I think as a teenager, for me, sometimes we're enamored by things of the West. We, I also had this, you know, memory of, you know, in my childhood when Your I did. Younger days, yeah, yeah. Though it was a very short time, I think that there was something about it, you know, that I, that I liked. I just wanted to dance. For me, it didn't really matter what dance it was. Like, I just like to move. So yeah. at that time, I would do any dance. You name it, I would I would want to, you know, I would want to go. So it didn't matter if it was hip hop or flamenco, like every, everything enamored me. I was very bad at hip hop. <laughs> I never found a flamenco teacher. But I think that Bharatanatyam I gravitated towards because there's also a cultural layering that I connect to and I'm a part of. And so I think that with Bharatanatyam, it came easier, not just the physicality of it, but also the intention and the, you know, the, I don't know, the background from which it comes, you know, uh, the cultural aesthetic and all of that, because I, I mean, I am inherently an Indian and I grew up in India. So there are many things of the form that I connected to. So after studying at the conservatory, I mean, I, I considered doing modern for a while. And I mean, I was never a ballerina. People say I studied ballet, but I was never a ballerina. I never really danced. I mean, I, I wore my point shoes for a while, but I never really. You didn't danced. really take to it. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, physically, but there's also a big gap. You know, I studied when I was really small. Then I started in my late teens. So there's a huge gap for ballet. And most people, if you really want to be amazing ballet dancers, you never have that gap. There's no way for me to, you know. And it's also a lot about, it's gymnastic in some ways. And there is artistry, but 
your body needs to lend itself to so many things physically with ballet. Yeah. So I do it for technique and I enjoy the form, but I'm not really a ballerina. But with modern and contemporary dance, there is a point where I was in the middle of these roads and I, I was thinking, which way do I go? Right. I spent some time in New York, you know, auditioning for companies and going through some things. And then one day I was just like, no, I, I need to go and do Bharatanatyam. And so I came, I came home and I still do contemporary work now, but a large portion of it, I explore contemporary thought with my Bharatanatyam vocabulary. And I feel I find more strength and grounding to come from that place. Okay, so, so with Bharatanatyam, you did not feel like you were mentioning that with ballet, um, if there's a gap, you know, it does sort of, it's not the same thing. But with Bharatanatyam, because you, you would have had a gap of a few years, right? Or did you continue because your mom was a Bharatanatyam dancer? So even at home, you were kind of practicing it or you were learning? I didn't really have a gap with Bharatanatyam because okay. I was very young, maybe when I was five or six, I had four or five, like I would have gone to class for a little bit. And then I did ballet. And at that age, as long as you're studying movement, it's fine. Yeah. So, yeah. so it really doesn't matter before you're seven or eight. So if you're exposed to movement, so even me going to ballet class or watching performances or trying to jump and do cartwheels on my own, all of that would count towards, you know, movement training. So yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't really matter before you're eight. And uh, after I was eight, I've never had a gap with Bharatanatyam. Even when I was in... Um, when you were at the... Uh, the I was in a place where I was choreographing on my own. I was already doing solo performances in Bharatanatyam. So I was in a place where I could practice on my own. On your own. So yeah. I would practice a lot on my own. And yeah. the months of the summer, I literally, I didn't leave my dance teacher's house until she kicked me out. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so she would, this was a, this was our daily conversation. So I would go in the morning as early as she let me go. She, I would, I, I mean, I would go to yoga class first. So I would finish because my yoga teacher is the only one who would who could bear to see me at like 5.30 or 6 in the morning. <laughs> so I would finish two classes with him. And then I would go to uh, my Bharatanatyam teacher, Narmadanti's house by like 9 o'clock or something like that, straight 8.30 or 9. And I would dance and then someone else would come. She would always have these individual lessons, like with single people, because that's how... Classical Indian dance is taught largely, you know. And I would continue to dance with whoever came. Then around 1.30, she'll say, go home, I'll eat lunch. So I'll say, it's fine, you can eat lunch, I'll just wait here. <laughs> eat lunch and come back, I can continue That's to dance. Thought, oh my God. Oh, she's, she's like, how do I get rid of this? Thank no, you. I think she would also appreciate the fact that you had this drive in you right of wanting yeah. to absorb as much as you could and you didn't you didn't want to waste any time over it so i think that's that's pretty interesting yeah yeah, yeah. i know but now as a teacher i think back <laughs> i think oh my god she was really so patient with me so she's like go home and come back so i'll be like after bed i say okay what time can i come back at three and she say no no i need to sleep for a while come back at five i say okay auntie i'll come at four <laughs> so it, it was I think the summers were always in our house like I would I would literally I, I went nowhere 
I didn't have a big social life, so I never like went out or that. None of that was a really big thing for me. Right. So I would just be in Narmadani's house and Sundariyaka's house actually also, who's my other Bharatanatyam teacher. <laughs> so that's how you, you spent your summers. Yeah. So then how did Radha, and I'm going to say it absolutely correctly, Radha Kalpa, how did that come about? I came back from college in 2008 okay. and I started immediately making and I was finding my footing, you know, like because I'd come from a very like modern, like training background. And so I didn't know whether I wanted to continue to create in that vocabulary separately. I kept the two vocabularies very separate. So I kept my Bharatanatyam separate and my contemporary work very, very separate for a while. So the first two years I spent like making things that were in contemporary, uh, that were in the contemporary movement vocabulary, as we deem as contemporary movement. Contemporary, yeah, yeah. Because I don't think it's a movement vocabulary. I think it's a thought process. But at that time, I still hadn't figured it out. Right. So, so I would do that. Then I would do a lot of jazz and, you know, like, and continue to make my Bharatnatyam. And at that time, I started dancing with a friend of mine. And we began dancing in a, in a duet, kind of. So for two years when we were dancing a duet, we I came up with this name because I I wanted to call it something, you know. So I called it the Radha Kalpa Dance Company. That's how it started. And after a few years, and we also tried, I mean, I also tried working on ensemble and all that. Like everything was like, you know, I was very finding your ground and you Yeah, I was trying yeah. to figure out what I needed to do and yeah. all of that. I started teaching a little bit and but by two thousand and ten, so it took me two years to do all of this and all of that. Two thousand ten I was like, I'm not gonna teach anymore. I just shut down my <laughs> my teaching and the end of two thousand ten, yeah, I said I, I need to work on solo and I'm not gonna do ensemble work and whenever i commissioned i'll do ensemble work what prompted that decision i think it was draining me and i was beginning to uh, because i'm someone like for 10 years before that you know so i spent three years just dancing before going to college so the four years of college plus these two years plus the three years before that so for 10 years i had danced morning to night without ever, literally morning to night, I would wake up at 5.30 and I would start dancing by six. And I would be moving for 10, 12 hours a day and that would be a normal day. And I don't think until that time, I ever felt drained by it. I always felt invigorated by it, you know? And with the classes and the ensemble and all this stuff, I was like, I'm feeling too overwhelmed and I'm, I'm, I'm losing the joy that I have in it. So then I said, I just want to work on my developing my artistry, yeah. which is important for me at this time, because I'm still not, you know, like established as a solo. I haven't found my ground yet. So I, I, I just blanket. I stopped teaching. I asked my students to go to other uh, teachers at that time. And then I, I took like four years after that too. And I didn't, I didn't teach. I worked on myself. And I did do ensemble productions, but they were commissioned. So okay. it wasn't something that I was trying to do all the time. So it would be for a short period of three months of the year, and then I would tour it and finish. Yeah, so I, I mean, it was very, it was really, really nice for me to make that decision and take that time to kind of just 
work on on myself and yeah so radha kalpa remained but uh, it would be like you had other teachers within radha kalpa who were then the students no not at that time no i was okay yeah, okay yeah. i was just in my like early 20s so i i, I mean i didn't I didn't have like people I trained and that they would take over or anything right, like that. Right, 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 right. The but the ensemble productions that I did and the solo productions. So it started becoming like I would make one or two solo productions in the year, and I would end up working on one ensemble uh, large productions, which was largely with freelance dancers. So it happened once a year, once every two years. I think in two thousand thirteen, I made one in two thousand. Fourteen, I made one. Then fifteen was a gap, and again in sixteen, like that, you know. But there must be a lot of effort going into whether it's a solo performance or it's um, like you mentioned an ensemble, even if it's commissioned. There must yeah. be a lot of different factors that go into it, right? In terms of the production, in terms of what it is that you want out of it. and in terms of obviously the performance the practice the you know the rehearsals the the whole concept all of that must be pretty time consuming for you to not then be able to do like five solo performances in a year right you're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me Pyo on this very unique and special podcast series Melting Pot. I mean like they would I usually any I think any choreographer artist when they when they make work we take a long time to arrive yeah. at. Yes. Yeah. So in a year I would make possibly two solo productions and one ensemble. Yeah. Artist. Yeah, and in the last five years, it's kind of regularized. So I make a little bit more than that. Like I make a lot of work on my students, which I don't even count. So those are just like traditional margam and that, like tilanas and pushpanjali's, all those kind of things. That's just like an ongoing job. So that I just keep making. So I don't put that into my choreographic forty. But I make one um, traditional margam on myself. one contemporary work which is a full length contemporary work uh, i use the bharatanatyam vocabulary now and i started doing that like 3 4 years ago 3 i think 3 yeah must be 4 years now and then i do one ensemble work which is what has been happening the last few years but considering the pandemic i didn't make an ensemble work last year mm-hmm. and I probably will not make one this year so and what about the solo that's possible to do right like yeah, solo work is possible to do yeah. but i think i was working on a subject last year and i was meant to present in tour and everything by the end of last year and the beginning of this year by the middle of last year i realized like there's no point because i'm not going to perform it and art, as artists we're so volatile that i can't decide something now and then wait for a year to perform it because i'm going to change my thoughts are going to change yeah. and what i see in it is going to change so i would like whenever my research and all of that is done and i have an overall idea of imagery and everything i like to keep maybe like 4 months before my first performance and then start working on the final bits then so now since i don't know when my first performance is yeah i so, kind of so um I mean the reason why I was asking is that it would not be possible to do a solo performance 
virtually to an audience who would then connect to the performance from whichever part of the world they were in. Is that not something that happens? I think it happens, but I'm not so sure that I'm very keen on it. Okay. Because my work, I, I make it to be viewed on stage. And there are choices that I make because of a physical audience being there. The direction I walk, the diagonal I take, how long I stand in the center. There are so many choices that I make because I know there is a physical audience sitting there. And I don't make the same choices if I'm dancing in a theater. If I've made the piece for a theater which has a thousand people watching or thousand five hundred people watching, right? Because yeah. if there are thousand five hundred people watching, I use my body more. If largely most of the Bharatanatyam pieces are meant for like, I don't know, like 400 audience, maximum 500. It's a more of an intimate kind of performance uh, setting. Most Bharatanatyam pieces lend themselves to that. So, I mean, I don't, but if it is on film, the choice I would, the choices I would make to convey the same subject, I think would be totally different. And um, you think the visual impact would also be lost? I think the visual impact, I can use the same subject, which is what I'm starting to do now is that I'm using the same subject perhaps, but treating it differently because film is a different medium. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's not the same as when watching physically. And I know a lot of artists are performing and streaming them virtually, but although initially I, I wanted to watch a lot of artists and I did watch them, I don't want to watch any more shows online. Mm -hmm. I would like to watch them in person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> it's, yeah. And and obviously you being an artist yourself, I mean, I can I can completely understand that. It's yeah, it's time for it to be a different. It can never be back to like it was. Not never, but at least for the next couple of years. But I think yeah, I can I can sense the not just talking to you but talking to a lot of other performers. It's time and that restlessness to want to get back and to to have a live audience is now starting to happen. So yeah, I completely understand. It's that. very different because when you make for film, what happens is that the creative process of ideating and all of that is great. Yeah. When you dance itself, there is no presence of another human in front of you. Yeah. And as performers, we feed off of that. In some ways, there are, especially when in performing, I'll try to explain this in as easily. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
language. <laughs> yeah. Because when performing, like say that I'm feeling an emotion, right? And I'm I'm expressing something as a character or whatever. There is that moment where as a performer, I experience it truly and honestly. And at the same time, the audience also experienced that same moment, honestly, with me. So now there's a huge time gap. So I may experience it like, I don't know, 40 days before. And then I put it on film and then they edit it and then the camera comes in. And then I feel like absolutely nothing. And then we air it. And a lot of audience members feel it at different times, which is totally different. And there is, there is value to that as well, because you reach more people, more people can see your work, but it's a different, it's a different type of art. It's not the same as what I mean. So I think as performers, we we're accustomed to performing and having people in front of us. And it's that energy that you absorb, right? Yeah. From the audience. And we feed off of like, if they laugh, they clap, we can we respond to it or you can tell if they're moved or not or you know if they're quiet so i think that is i'm learning to work with uh, film and it's it's very it is an enjoyable process i'm not saying it's not but i miss being on stage (laughs) yeah hopefully it's not going to be long before you are on stage again how important is for performers and especially like for yourself you spend so much time with your craft whether it's for yourself or whether it's through uh, your school how important is it to also have other interests outside of dance i think that it's important to live life because we find inspiration for work from you know from life from being amongst people by observing society by you know like there's so many things that we create that we can't just create in solitude because what we reflect in performances is life itself so with that respect i think it's important for us to participate in our lives because many of us don't i'm saying it to myself as well so it's uh, important to do that because then even just from the respect of your art itself i'm saying not just yeah yeah but i think largely artists we're so, I don't know, especially for me, I'm so immersed in my dance that I don't do anything else. I just, I think dance, if I'm, if I'm running, I'm listening to dancing music. If I'm, if I'm in the car, I'm listening to like what I'm choreographing. I mean, it, it really doesn't. It, it doesn't leave you. It's yeah, it doesn't. Even if I'm listening to some other music, the same thing will be running in my mind. Like, how does this apply to the concept that I'm currently working on. So it it's kind of obsessive in a way. Um, and everything I do is for dance. I do yoga for dance. I do my strength training for dance. I do my cardiovascular for dance. And I do enjoy all those things on their own separately as well. But everything feeds into my dance. I think in the pandemic is the first time that I've done a few things which have absolutely nothing to do with my dance. And what is it that you've done? I started learning golf because I lost my dad recently and he really used to love golf. So I inherited his golf clubs and I decided I'm going to I'm going to start playing. I'm at nursery level right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm starting. 
I also learned to dive. So I um, have nice. been speaking about it for a long time, my husband and I, to, you know, learn to dive. And we're so enamored with, you know, like the underwater world and the oceans. Right. So we, I just got my advanced diving certificate. And yeah, so, so I guess I have two hobbies. Now. <laughs> yeah, so it's not, it's not, now you realize that it's not, only dance it's good to sort of get involved of course it's good but i mean it's difficult that's all yeah really hard sort of disengage yourself yeah no i can i can understand that because i was i don't know if it's the name of a documentary or if you know someone who is a performer has said it but or a dancer it you know i i picked it up somewhere that a dancer dies twice yeah <laughs> and um, the first time is very very painful so that is the time i guess when a dancer stops dancing for whatever reason yeah mm-hmm. i mean is that something that connects with you you're still very young and you have you know many many years um ahead of you and you've also got a legacy that you have kind of established through your school but personally is that something that you would agree with and how do you feel about that i think that's something that i have thought about and i think it it would definitely be if a day like that ever came to face me is that i think i would be devastated definitely like because it's like my like now there are no performances but nothing's preventing me from dancing Yeah. So I'm still dancing every day. I'm going to the studio. I'm doing my things. Like nothing's preventing me from dancing per se. So I can still dance morning to night just as I always was. In fact, the first eight, nine months of the the lockdown, yeah. I danced more than I danced because I didn't have to travel. Yeah. I didn't take any flights. I wasn't teaching. So yeah. Yeah. I spent so much more time dancing. And I mean, I, I think amidst personal loss, I was a bit... I I I deviated a bit you know like and I I took that time to kind of just I was finding it hard to dance for a few months but uh, I think that if you say I can't dance at all like because of an illness or some physicality I think that that would be I don't know I I don't I really want to imagine it <laughs> I think my family will suffer more than me <laughs> So, so I think it's yeah that that is true but I think if it's if it's something that happens because of age and I'm unable to move anymore and then it it you know it progresses I've I think I'm I've prepared myself to be at peace with that because I know that I love teaching I love watching my students dance I love creating uh things I love making things so even if I physically not at my peak anymore I'm pretty sure I can make impactful work through others bodies through film hopefully because I'm learning that medium and through other things because storytelling is what I enjoy if I can't do it through my body or yeah, people yeah. if my body is unable to tell the stories as effectively I can dance in my room for my own happiness and I can <laughs> I can use other people's bodies to do that so that's that's what i meant with legacy and um, you can still impart the knowledge that and the experience not that it's going to happen for a while but it i was just curious because you know it it just caught my attention when i read about it and i said and then there were a lot of performer 
dancers who picked up on it and have things to say about it, which is why I thought it would be interesting to hear your perspective about it as well. That's why classical Indian dancers, the because it's more forgiving physically, there are dancers who are like 70, 75, who still perform. And it's not something that's like looked down on, like because in the Western world, your body tells a story. But in classical Indian dance forms, there is that aesthetic shift that culturally we accept. And it's okay if you're not doing like your physicality to the maximum because you have something else to offer at that time, you know. So, yeah, we're more forgiving. In, in, in that with- sense, yeah. So, yeah, which is good. But it just helps keeping it alive, right? Within use. That spark, it, you know, it helps. Yeah. So what, I'm not sure, which is why I'm asking, have you done any cinema? As in, not dance, but as a, have you acted in any cinema? I have, I've done a few films. Okay. Tamil and Kannada and one I've done a guest appearance in one Hindi film, but yeah. And so whatever you've done, has it been linked to dance or no? Okay, which is great. Yeah. I think in two films, I did have a dancing kind of role. But I mean, there was a dance. But Indian movies have dance anyway. Dance anyways, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I had like two pieces that were like, you know, where I danced. But the others not. I mean, there's dance in them. And I do dance. But I don't, that's not, yeah, actually I've danced in almost all of them, but it's just like, it's it's not a dance oriented movie. Yeah, so that's what I was asking, if your character was essentially a dancer or there was that Only background. one of them. Only in one. Only one of them. Yeah. Okay. So what is Radha Kalpa method? That's basically, I think that when, when I started studying uh, Bharatanatyam when I was a kid, because of the lineage of how it's passed down, I think there's a lot of knowledge that was lost in terms of learning physicality, the science of it and all of that, you know. So we weren't trained with anatomical awareness. We were trained with a skill-based progression. And what happens, and even today, more than 99.9% of training in the classical Indian dance forms happens from a skill-based perspective which is why there's so many dancers who have injuries, who sustain um, lower back injuries, knee problems, ankle problems, and so many of them stop dancing because they have these issues. The awareness of physicality and anatomy is growing, like largely now, and a lot of people are are changing. But this was something I started doing over, I want to say like 15 years ago. So I. So did you actually study it? You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Pyle, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. Yeah, so it started kind of like a social kind of thing. So I I actually, before even before I went to college, I'd, I'd gone to a few dance classes and I'd asked, what do you do for a warm up? or what are the injuries you have? And so there was an interest that I had, like, I, I want to say it must have been like 2002 or something like that, you know, so like 18 years ago. So, and then I, I would write down and then I, I was, I would participate in all these online forums that used to be there, like, because the internet had just come in and, you know, kind of ask, like, there are these injuries, why do you get that? And so in college, I, I went to the Boston Conservatory, 
but I studied anatomy and physiology and exercise physiology in Boston University over uh, as a summer program. But it's basically the course that the physiotherapists take. So I studied that and I did some other courses which were online from UCLA on biomechanics and nutrition and some other things that kind of supplemented it. I think the Radha Kalpa method is a is kind of a, it's something that I arrived at from the different learning that I had. Like, so I can't say that this is from this, this is from this, this is from this. So you picked whatever you thought would be relevant. The things that I have understood from being in yoga class, things I've understood from being in Pilates class, from my Alexander teacher, from my ballet teacher, from modern pedagogy, from my Bharatanatyam teachers. So the, the, the learning is like in so many different places. And it also encompasses intent and um, this is a physical part of it, but the method also encompasses intent, imagination, and creative impetus, which comes some a bit from my theater training, some a bit from conversations with one of my teachers, you know, so it, it, it's a lot from different places. And the method overall is about how to create a neutral body that's effective in performance, uh, that's versatile, injury-free, and at the same time, create a performer that has intent and cohesive imagination so but because even abhinaya we would learn as like from a gesture and then we would imagine but i start in the radha kalpa method from when the kids they start imagining space first mm-hmm. gesture comes later so the aesthetics of keeping your elbow up and having the right hasta and all of that comes later but i first teach them how to visualize and imagine and where that comes from so yeah i mean it's it's a it's a very it's very holistic is, yeah. is what you're you're saying and yeah. so you've created a program you've actually written up a program and that's that's the radha kalpa method okay mm, that's that's very interesting so currently how many students do you have uh, in your I, I teach very small number of students okay i have only eight students eight children who have been with me from when they were four or five years old and so now they are 10 and 11, um, that age. So they are probably the only ones who have started out from when they were small in this method. And they are, you know, they've grown with it. Before the lockdown, I also had a group of adult students who had come to me who wanted to be professional dancers, who were learning with me full time for almost three to four years. Basically, they started when I started teaching again like right. 2014 i think yeah so they so they are also there but most of them were you know like they're all they're also teachers now all of them and they're professional dancers so when the lockdown happened i kind of suspended their classes because they're all okay to manage on their own oh, right yeah and then i take in i have a group of ongoing students which i started again on an online program so because i am a performer it's difficult for me to take in many batches and teach hundreds of students so um, have you trained anyone to and not help you but have you know to sort of like eventually you'll start to travel with your solo performances and so is there anyone who would then yeah the past four years when um i kind of had a full-time company at that time for like two and a half years i had a full-time company of dancers so after the hiatus of not doing ensemble work between uh, i want to say 2017 
2016 and 19 or 15 and 19 i made see i think 16 and 19 i made like four like five full length productions on an ensemble and you traveled oh. and you traveled with oh, the ensemble is, because they are younger and they're newer right I, it, a large portion of it was them training right so the first two productions were more for them to learn so and it's a lot more money a lot more funding so until they become like you know, grounded and established, it's impossible to say, hey, take this whole company. The first two productions kind of made them get the grounding. The next one was experimental in nature and the next two were solid. They were good. They were good to tour. And this is kind of... Ensembles were your students, these ensembles? They were all my students. All your students. There was eight of them. So six of them were full-time and two of them were like kind of part-time. So... But because of the lockdown and all of this, you know, like thing happening and before that as well, the company didn't have funding. I couldn't keep eight of them full time and like the salaries. It's, I mean, it's it's hard with the arts, right? Yeah. So we've kind of like taken a hiatus, like about eight, nine months before the lockdown. Even. So then when the lockdown happened, I kind of said like, I mean, everyone just, because they were also all teachers and they're all doing their own thing simultaneously. So that group was doing their own thing, but the, some of them used to teach for me. So they would handle my classes and take care of the kids when I went. Right. But now it's okay. The kids will be fine even when I travel. And yeah. I'm, I don't plan on taking more batches or anything because it's this pandemic has changed too many things. That is so true. So <laughs> as soon as the pandemic kind of, I mean, it's slowly coming in in control but as soon as you're able to actually I, I don't say freedom is not the right word but you know as you're able to actually start to things get back to normal what is the first thing that you would want to do perform <laughs> yeah. so are you are you starting to prepare I did I'm always prepared I do. Okay. <laughs> I'm always rehearsed Right. I have like all my productions that are in, you know, like uh, the full length productions. Like I have three that were in performance. Right. I can dance any of those. Yeah. Okay, good. So then you're, you're I mean, as soon as things get normal. It's easing up in Bangalore. Okay. Uh, but I mean, I never danced only in Bangalore, right? So yeah. I can't do like all 40 of my shows in Bangalore. Like it doesn't work like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's more about the restrictions on travel that are the issue right now. So performances are opening up locally in each place, but to get from one place to travel and going and coming, all that is an issue right now. It still needs a lot of planning and it needs, I mean, it needs, yeah, a lot of energy goes into that anyways. So I did one show in January. Okay. I'm probably going to do another one in April. This is very... (laughs) This is very odd for someone who used to perform like twice a week. <laughs> I know, mean, I can imagine. Wow, I can imagine. But, you know, I guess you've held it all together, which is fantastic. And I think a lot of us have. And I'm sure things things can only be looking upwards uh, from now <laughs> on. So <laughs> That's the good part. It can't get worse than this. It can't get worse than this, yeah. So we just have to be very optimistic. We've been so patient and we've, uh, yeah. And things will open up and we will 
move ahead. And I think that's, and that's going to happen with you as well. But this has been absolutely fabulous talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, and, I th- and I've learned so much as well. And I'm sure my listeners will also when the episode gets published. So just before signing off, would you have like, with all your experience, anyone who is aspiring to be a dancer, a couple of tips for them? I think the only thing I would, I always say is that one thing is be consistent and there'll be days where you just don't want to dance, but try to coax yourself into the studio and do as much as you can. And the last and most important thing is that you have to love dancing irrespective of where you dance, when you dance, how you dance, who watches you dance, who doesn't watch you dance. And if you love dancing, everything else comes as a fallout. Performance or talks or teaching, invite, every, everything will come as a plus, including financial stability. So first, there must be a need to grow within yourself and you are your own competition, nobody else's. Yeah, so true, yeah. On that note, again, thank you so much, Rukmini, and we'll speak to you again soon. Take care, keep smiling, and I'm sure I'm going to hear very soon that you have already started traveling with your performances. (laughs) Well, whatever will be, will be. (laughs) Take care. Thank you, Payal. Thank you so much. For more weekly conversations, do listen to Melting Pot on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Follow us on YouTube and on Instagram at Podcast Melting Pot. So until the next episode, this is Payal signing off. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.